Are you looking for the perfect rehydration drink to support your active lifestyle? Well, my friends, look no further than Hoist. Hoist is there for you whether you're going to use it pre-workout, in the middle of your workout in between sets, after workout, maybe if you're traveling, if you feel that dehydration headache sneaking up on you, or maybe if you just had a late night the night before and you need to reset and get back after it. With three times the electrolytes of traditional sports drinks with half the sugar and no high fructose corn syrup, no artificial preservatives, sweeteners, or dyes, Hoist is BPA-free, it's kosher, and most importantly, it's made in the USA, baby. We all use Hoist, and I can't speak highly of it enough. Whether I'm doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu, I'm out doing tactical operations, or I'm in the gym trying to make sure that I'm harder to kill, Hoist is always there to support me. With five delicious flavors you can pick up at your local grocery store or gas station, I love the dragon fruit, but you can try the orange, watermelon, peach mango, or strawberry lemonade. Hoist knows that you don't do normal things and you might be out in the wilderness on a hunt or you might be on a long ruck. Well, they hear you and they've also got three delicious powder packs that you can mix in water anytime you want it. Peach mango, grape, and that fruit punch is that hitter for those packets. So go check them out. If you need IV level hydration for your normal everyday to day activity or if you're trying to get after it working two workouts a day, Hoist is there to support you. Go check them out. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Ones Ready podcast. Uh, I am solo on this one. However, we do have a returning guest, which I'm always excited because uh, I was just telling you that, <laughs> dude, I I always look forward to talking to you because I know that I'm going to sit here and receive comments from other people with just this stupefied look on my face just because I'm just getting my mind blown every time I talk to you. And it also gets weird too. (laughs) It does get weird, which I'm okay with. Like I can get weird, but, um, so Taylor Starch, welcome back to the ones ready podcast. We are always ecstatic to have you. And we kind of prepped a little bit for this one, not you and me, but you know, we, we asked the audience, um, you know, because you have some pretty hot takes or like you have some conventional wisdom, but then you also have some, you know, some definite critics and some haters out there, but that's fine. Cause we all, we all do, but um, we definitely asked the audience kind of like, what do we want to focus on? What do we want you to focus on so that you can just take us to church and specifically talk about recovery. So like going right off the bat, like what you're kind of going in for recovery uh, that you want to hit right off the bat. Oh man. Uh, so I'm really, really excited to kind of break this down and talk about it. It is, you know, recovery 50 years ago used to be about the things that you didn't do. (laughs) So it was recovery used to be, Hey, don't do these things. Don't go for a run. Don't do a CrossFit workout. Uh, Don't, you know, stay up all night and drink. So it was recovery and rest used to be, Hey, just don't do. But now it's turned into a multi-million. I'm sure it's up in the billions in terms of recovery research, uh, recovery tools. Uh, it almost feels to this point where it's, it's, it's its own monster now. And it's overwhelming. It's overcomplicated. And hopefully by the end of today, people are going to feel a lot more comfortable. And we can go through everything because there's a lot of things that make up recovery. I think the most important thing to understand is the goal of training in general, right? So training, where everyone watching this is training for something. They're training for the pipeline. They're training to get their deadlift heavier. They're trying to run faster, swim faster. So the goal of training is to adapt. It, that That is it. Our goal is to maximize adaptation, not fatigue. 
So let's make sure that we think about our conversation in the context of the goal is to maximize adaptation because obviously recovery is going to allow us to have more stimulating or adaptive inputs into the body. That's a fancy word of saying we're going to get stronger, faster, better, or we're going to progress towards our specific goals. So when it comes to recovery, I think people will start to think. So when I say recovery, what do you think about? Uh, well, I guess probably training scars. I think of, of rest, uh, like you had mentioned, hey, you, you don't do anything on that day, which I have gotten out of that. Are there days where like due to time or whatever, like I'm just have had 14 days in a row of training. So I'll just take the day off completely. Yeah. I mean, I'd be lying if I said uh, that wasn't the case, but I also believe in like active kind of a recovery where, okay, maybe I'm not going out and doing a, a crushing run or a, a CrossFit workout or anything like that, but maybe I'll just go for an enjoyable hike out in Red Rock Canyon in Las Vegas or something like that. Like to me, that is an active recovery. Yeah, abs absolutely. So, so when we hear the word recovery, we're going to all think different things. Some people think sleep, some people think foam rollers, some people think a good book. But the most important thing to understand is recovery is not just one process. And I think this is where a lot of people kind of miss the boat, so to speak. Recovery is pretty much going to be kind of a total of dozens of individual processes. So when let's think about recovery. We're going to have stuff like where we damage muscle tissue and we're going to have structural repair uh, to stuff like bones, ligaments, tendons, muscles, right? So we're, when we're training, we are imposing demands on those tissues and then they have to repair, right? So that that's one of the processes of recovery. And I think a lot of people think about that. Well, then we also have the second, which is more the metabolic, which is going to be your energy substrates. Now that's a sciencey word for stuff like glycogen, which is your stored sugar. So when we train, we put demands on our energy systems uh, and we have to fuel those demands. So obviously we're going to have the depletion of carb stores. We're going to have the replenishment of carb stores. So that's recovery. I don't think people think about the immune system as one of the parts of recovery. But the immune system is pretty much your inflammatory response, which is super important. And I think that we need to get into inflammation because everything is anti-inflammatory. And I think that most people are missing the boat there. But we also have stuff like, that we're stressing, which is our psychological, right? Our factors, which is going to be our motivation to train, our mental stress, right? We're going to have pain. We're going to have everything from hydration, electrolytes, hormones, memory, skill, motor learning. You get what I'm saying. As we start to break down recovery, we realize that it's not just one thing. But I think for most people, they're only focusing on one thing. So here's an example. When it comes to recovery stuff, there's this huge marketing monster behind a lot of it. So for instance, foam rolling, right? You've been told five million times and everyone- for you to, I was waiting for you to go into this one. I'm just going to get the elephant out there. So, <laughs> foam rolling, right? Every, you type in foam rolling recovery or recover foam roller on Google, you're going to get millions of results of, here's how to foam roll after a run. Here's how to foam roll your lats. Here's how you recover using a foam roller. Well, that's not the devil. But we've got to understand foam rolling might decrease your perceived soreness. But when I listed all those other factors, what else is it doing for recovery? Is it doing anything for hydration? No. No. 
Is it doing anything for your immune response? No. So you see how it's kind of, they, they latched onto one aspect of recovery, got people hyper-focused on it, and then said, oh, you, you, you need this. Here's another well, I think I think that's because the... Oh, the sorry about my dogs in the background. <laughs> uh, we, we love dogs on the podcast. <laughs> but I, I think that the reason why foam rolling, and I agree, like, is it helping your hydration? Is it helping all that stuff? No. But I think it's because you, you get that instant... Um, satisfaction or you get that instant like, okay, well, maybe it does help take away some of my soreness so people can perceive that. And it's that instant gratification kind of thing. Um, maybe that's why it just kind of people latched onto it. So like, for instance, and I don't have an inherent problem with people using these tools. I don't use them personally or with any of my clients, but for instance, like the marketing behind them is quite misleading in terms of recovery. So for instance, you'll see like, just, I won't spend too much time on foam rolling, but it's one of the most common ways people try to recover. So foam rolling will say, oh, it's going to break up muscle knots and scar tissue. It's going to increase blood flow. It's going to help you recover quicker. These claims are com- somewhat dubious and scientifically that don't make sense. So really quickly, if I take a foam roller or an instrument or I scrape a muscle, basically I am sliding over the tissues, which means I'm not creating a directional force in the underlying tissues. So the only message these cells are going to get from something like foam rolling, uh, grasping, or if you take a lacrosse ball and roll over your tissues is a compressive force. Now, why does that matter to you? Because we know that tension affects collagen lines and basically compression on the other hand, we're not sure. So what this tells us is that if I just compress tissues, that based on the current application research, we know that tissues need to have force applied over long periods of time and applied frequently. When you're foam rolling up and down, how much time are you spending on this particular area of your tissue? Not long. Millisecond, maybe five seconds if I'm rolling up and down. So the idea of that you're rolling an area for five minutes would actually change anything in the tissues is not logical, flies in the face of most scientific principles, And basically what you're getting is almost touch induced analgesic, which means that if you bang your knee on like a car door and it hurts, you start rubbing it, right? So that's the same mechanism that we Mm. have to play there. So what happens is though, these companies say, oh, it's going to help you recover quicker. Well, another example is, well, if I'm just rolling my skin and rubbing, that's a compressive force. That doesn't cause an increased demand for oxygen. So, you know what does create an increased demand for oxygen is Moving. doing a walk, right? So you're going to see all these marketing things, and it's not wrong. And yes, you can perceive soreness, but you see how the other things that they're claiming these tools do, they don't. And that would just be like the same thing. So you take something like the ever popular CBD right now, which I know is a controversial topic, but everyone's using it. It's now available at King Supers or Fries or Sprouts. <laughs> so. CBD, they're like, hey, this is going to help you recover quicker because it decreases inflammation. But is that really helpful to recovery considering that inflammation is part of the adaptive process? So I am so glad you brought up inflammation. And I don't and I don't mean to derail you if I am, but since you bring up inflammation, like I and and by no means am I an expert, which is why I bring like people like you on, but I think inflammation is an important part of the process. And I think when you take, you know, Motrin or Tylenol, something like that to get rid of the pain, I, I think you're, all you're doing is disguising it instead of working it out. Um, 
And I'm yeah. trying to think of an example. Like, I don't think I've ever taken Motrin or Tylenol or something like that for, um, you know, muscular pain. But I, I know, like, say say you roll your ankle a little bit, just not not a full, like, you know, but you just kind of tweak a little bit and you take some Motrin or something like that to, help to you know, ease the pain. But if anything, you got to walk it out. Like, you need that pain to send messages to the to the brain and to your to your cell. Man, I, I'm well, I'm embarrassed so, myself here, but you you get I don't know if you can so, save me or not. <laughs> so let's think about if we're training for something like hypertrophy, which is gaining lean muscle mass, right? Our goal is to maximally stimulate those fibers and put lots of tension. So obviously that is going to degree load those tissues and they're going to need to recover. So we kind of have a two-phase part to that. We're gonna have what's called the pro-inflammatory phase. And the way to think about this is almost like after a natural disaster. So after natural disaster, everything's destroyed. So you have a cleanup crew that comes in and they actually kind of have to destroy a little bit more because you got buildings that are kind of half tumbled down. So they got to come in bulldoze and then they can actually start the rebuilding process, which would be the anti-inflammatory phase. So inflammation is a stimulus or a signal to the body to adapt. So the crazy thing is almost all these recovery methods are trying to blunt that signal. So if I go and do a hypertrophy workout trying to gain lean muscle, and then I go jump in an ice bath, which would be cold water immersion in the research and literature, I am basically potentially, right, blunting the signal that's telling my body to grow. So I'm going to kill that pro-inflammatory phase. I might increase my recovery time and might not get the adaptive response. What was the goal at the beginning of this podcast? The goal is to adapt not simply just get tired. And it's all about maximizing adaptation. And the important thing to remember is that we adapt through inflammation. So inflammation is a great thing. Obviously, chronic inflammation is another thing, and that's another topic, another podcast. But we think about this, so people will do their training programs, and they'll be chronic, or they'll be, they'll be inflamed. Their tissues are sore. Their backs are hurt. So let's think about what most people do. They go slam a bunch of heavy squats, their low back, their legs are killing them. So they're like, okay, I need to recover. So they start foam rolling and they decrease, decrease that perceived soreness temporarily, right? Because it's not, you're not changing right. anything. To deform tissue with a foam roller, it just doesn't make sense. The IT band to deform it like 1%, you need a thousand pounds per square inch. So basically you'd have to take a steamroller and hit your IT band to get any tissue change. So it's more psychological change than an actual structural. So you go and foam roll your low back because it's killing you. And then you rub some CBD on it. And then you take the massage gun. And then maybe you have good soft tissue treatment. So you get some dry needles in there and you, you just go ahead with what you have planned. The problem is that pain, that inflammation was feedback from your system that you're not ready to go, A, so you're not fully recovered, or B, your training program sucks. So I'm going to I'm gonna get this out early so people can just write this on their notes and write the best recovery thing on the planet. The best recovery protocol, piece of equipment, is a freaking good training program where you manage the load, intensity, and stressors. There is nothing better. You can do everything you want to actively recover. It will never supersede a bad training program where you're doing unsustainable training loads. That's, that's just the truth. So for instance, 
we know lots of people get chin splints. You can ice them all you want. You can foam roll your calves all you want. You could stretch. You could dry needle. If your training loads are unsustainable, that is the thing you need to focus on and adjust. You can do all this type of active recovery. And the problem is, depending on the recovery, it might not even be something that's helping you recover. It could be increasing time. So, for instance, with soft tissue, have you ever seen where people get scraped or they get cupped? Oh, yeah. I've done it. I've done it. Now, I'm not saying that we can't get a positive pain response or someone might enjoy it, and that's a very good thing, right? We got to take into account what people's beliefs are. If you believe a treatment works, that's powerful. But if I'm actually causing more tissue damage to tissue that's inflamed, you're just increasing recovery time. Mm-hmm. So the number one thing for people to understand is when it comes to training, you have finite resources. That means every week, Every day when you go to train, you have only so much adaptation currency. It's almost like an allowance, right? The current, the adaptation currency you spend strength training is the same you spend doing your cardio. We don't have different currency. It's not like the euro versus the U.S. dollar. People think it's different. So the money you spend strength training is the same money you spend running, which is the same money you spend swimming, which is the same money you spend in your life. So we have only so much that we can spend. Now, when it comes to resource recoveries, which would be energy substrates, our psychological bandwidth, all that stuff, we only have so much we can spend. So we're always competing for recovery and time resources. So if our training program is poorly designed, and why these are so poorly designed is because we generally have strength coaches who have never done endurance training, writing a program for strength, But then when you add endurance training, you have what's called concurrent training or hybrid training where we're taking opposing stressors because people all think what cardio and strength are bad for each other. Like if you do too much cardio, you're going to get weak. If you do too much strength training, you can't have good endurance. Um, So what you have is you have programs designed by those people or they weren't designed with the opposing stressor in mind. So here's an example. I'll see a lot of people. I'm a kind of watchful guarding on the Discord chat or Reddit. Or <laughs> and I see all these people talking about all the injuries that are accruing, all the times they're getting sick, all the plateaus they're hitting. And they're not asking themselves, should I be doing this or how this is all playing together? They're just doing stuff and making it hard. So we have to understand what stressors do to the body. What does strength training do at a maximal effort? So if I was doing maximal strength training versus rate of force development, if I'm doing a zone two run versus if I'm doing a zone three run, if I have a run where I'm doing more downhill, that's more eccentric stress. So what I'm getting at and what people are going to be starting to think about is you need to prioritize good concurrent training And concurrent training is where we're trying to manage or balance or juggle all these opposing stressors, which means that when I strength train, that's obviously in opposition to long endurance. And they call that the interference effect in my world, but it's something that we have to learn how to manage, right? I want to address three things that that you kind of brought up there is I'm glad that you said you talked about kind of the placebo effect because, hey, if you believe that something works or you, you know, it gets you whatever you use and you believe it works. Like there is something to be said for the placebo effect, whether it's scientifically effective or not, like whatever. So, um, you know, you and I both acknowledge that, um, two is like, 
when I talked about the the scraping, or I think it's I think it's called rolfing is the actual technical term. I could be wrong. Very messes, but yeah. Yeah. So like when I've done that, it's not been for a recovery type thing. It's been for a a, a kind of a like a Kelly Starrett uh, mobility. You know, like you scrape certain areas around the ankle and the calf, and you can noticeably see the the range of motion increase. Um, and then the, the other thing is, is the coaching and training plans. Like you've seen it on Reddit, discord, whatever people just going ham on, you don't need a coach. You don't need a coach, you know, just get free training plans and stuff like that. And yes, that is true. You can do free training plans. You can get yourself in enough shape to not just pass an IFT, but also cruise through the pipeline 100%. But even at an operational unit and then the pipeline, you are still provided condition, strength and conditioning coaches that help develop plans for you. Because in reality, they're just smarter than you when it comes to this kind of stuff. And they're there to get you to a place where you need to be. Um, all that to say, like, you can, it is smart in my eyes to get some kind of good and uh, and qualified training plan for the pipeline. Yeah, and there, there's tons out there, and I'm not discounting anyone's experience. Obviously, if someone's on a program and they're progressing, that's awesome, but here's the truth. Everything works for a while, but not forever. And number yep. two, the fitter you get, the less room for error you have. And number three, anything works for deconditioned weak people. And that's, oh man, that's gonna stink. So, <laughs> I, need, I need to mark this clip right now, because I. This guy, <laughs> it, it's true, right? Because we know the law of diminishing returns states as I accommodate. And if you don't know what that word is, the law of accommodation says the better you get something, the less gains you get. Think about his name Bolt, right? He only marginally might gain a hundredth of a second versus a newbie could drop two seconds in their hundred. Yep. So as we get fitter, we're, what's going to happen is eventually the minimum we need to progress or stimulate and the maximum you can recover from will eventually need. And the further you are away from that meeting point, the easier thing is. So obviously if you can only do six pull-ups to eight, you could probably do almost anything. It's going to work. Just keep talking. I gotta, I gotta plug my computer. (laughs) I just realized that I'm like, I'm losing battery here. (laughs) We're going to lose five-star reviews right now. But that's the most important thing is that when when you're deconditioned, when you're weak, you can hop on any training program and it's going to work. So you could hop on, you know, a uh, simple and sinister. You could hop on a uh, five, three, one. You could do all this stuff. But eventually your body has this adapt or die response where even if you're training at unsustainable volumes, there's a lag response with the body, meaning it will it will super compensate and basically try to hang on for dear life. So people think, oh, because I'm doing all this badass training where I'm just every day I'm in a puddle of you know sweat and tears that I'm well I'm getting stronger and getting faster, and it only works until it stops working. And that's where pe- people are normally good, and they don't believe that you know um, a lot of the stuff when it comes to a proper training program or how to manage stressors until it stops working and they start plateauing and then all of a sudden maybe their runtime start getting slower. So one of the most important things with a training program is kind of having some stop gaps or some assessments in there, whether it's on a weekly basis or 
to make sure that you're not taking yourself into a point where your body can't recover. Because the one thing we've got to understand is if we are allocating more resources to repair and recovery than we are growth throughout the week, we're not going to be able to progress or we might not be able to progress very long. So every time you're training, you shouldn't say, can, can I do this? The human body is amazing. can do anything. And we know what happens as we push our mental limits. We can do anything because we're not going to, we can just push our limits. But the thing you have to ask yourself is what is the cost of what I'm doing? What is the cost of these five sets of five deadlift on my run? I'm going to do two hours later. Don't ask yourself if you can do it. Ask yourself, what is the recovery time for everything I'm doing after the workout? You need to say, how do I spend less time in recovery while still continuing to adapt? What most people are doing is they're seeing how much they can recover from, not how little time they can spend in recovery. And that, a maximum recoverable volume is like how much work you can do before you break. That makes sense for like a single sport athlete. So if I'm a, if I'm a 400 runner in track and field, my only goal is 400 meters. You are a concurrent athlete. You are not a professional powerlifter. You are not a professional ultra marathoner. You are balancing more stressors than most athletes have ever even considered. So the whole point is we have to do more work at a lower recovery cost, and it's all about maximizing recovery time. But what most people are doing is they're seeing how many reps they can do, how much weight they can do before they break. Now, they, now people are going to misconstrue this and say, well, don't we have to push our limits physically to unlock our mental like capacities and build? Yes, of course, the mind is improved through the body's fatigue. But you have to ask yourself, where am I at in my training process? Right? How long can I keep this up? But the, we have to understand what are the recovery limits. So it's vital that we have to stress the body and make it as tired as possible. But then we have to recover back to normal. So we have optimum development over time. If not, you're simply just getting tired and it will work until it doesn't work. And then yep. you're the person who says, well, I, I can only eat 13 pull-ups. Why can't I do more? It's because your goal is not adaptation anymore. It's demonstration. If most people listening to this podcast realize training was not a demonstration of strength, fitness, and capacity, it was about adapting and improving that, they would get a lot further. No, I, I agree. And, and if, like, if you had to take 75 pounds off of your deadlift, your back squat, and, and when you're doing five sets of five, so that you could do that five mile run later on, uh, yeah. like that's what you should be doing. And same with, if you're just crushed, if I go out on a blistering run today, um, but I have, I have every intent of part of my training plan to do another run to, uh, tomorrow and, and so on. But I have crushed myself so much that I have no glycogen storages. I am so sore that I'm like, I wake up the next morning. I'm like, you know what? I, there's no way I can move. Like I've, I've only hurt myself more than I've actually helped myself because I haven't adapted, but also like that five or eight miles or whatever I was going to do the next day. I didn't get those miles in. Because I crush myself today. Right, because the fatigue from a suboptimal workout will limit you maximizing the stimulus in another workout. And it's not about what you do on Tuesday, it's about the week, right? Yep. You can you can have two to three hardcore workouts, and then all of a sudden, after four weeks of that, eight weeks of that, you're not having progress anymore. That's why you need to have checks and balances. So a lot of times for my athletes, I'll have them do like where they'll have their four or five mile training run. 
normally, you know, like on trails, we're flat and minimal vert. And they should know when I'm running at my zone two, 145, that it takes me 45 minutes to do this. And boom. If all of a sudden you do that run three times in a row and your performance is worse, your heart rate profiles are worse, you need to seriously question if your body is keeping up with the adaptation and the load that you're, you're placing upon it. So another thing that I encourage hybrid or concurrent athletes to do is to add something like a broad jump test throughout their week. Um, that can be done once a week. It can be done multiple times. But the idea is that we're trying to check and see when we've kind of tipped the edge between doing too much work and not enough work. And there's no perfect science to this. If there was a formula that worked for everyone saying for, if you do two hours, you do this, I'd be the richest person alive. Every sports team <laughs> on the planet has, you know, all the, the whoops and the aura rings and the HRVs. They have millions of dollars invested in recovery to find out how can we get people to recover quicker. But there are certain things. So for instance, if I have a regular loop that I do that I know incredibly well, if I go for my easy run, and let's say it normally takes 45 minutes at 145, in three workouts in a row, it takes me 55 minutes, and I'm at, you know, the same heart rate, I need to start saying, wait a second, shouldn't I be running further at the same heart rate if I'm getting fitter? And then what if you're running that 45 minutes, but your heart rate's 15 beats higher? For yeah. three so but some need- of that, some of that has, I mean, there's other variables like, I mean, hydration, exactly part of it, sleep, uh, well, exactly. nutrition. There's so many variables in that. Well, that's the, so like when it comes, people are going to start saying, well, what do we do for recovery? And here's the, here's the first truth. When it comes to recovery, passive recovery is going to always trump active recovery. This is the big misnomer. Mm. And this is what that I talked about the big marketing, the big marketing scheme, because they convince you almost like, almost like that you have FOMO, that fear of missing out. You're like fear of not actively recovering. They've created this fear that you're not doing enough and your body doesn't recover unless you grab a Theragun, CBD, infrared sauna, contrast baths, dry needling, K tape, scrape. Like they, your body is incredibly resilient and adaptive. And the second you stimulate it, so if I'm doing deadlifts and I send an adaptive signal that's at the proper intensity, I've already started the adaptive process. Now, I, nece- I haven't necessarily started the recovery process because I might still be training. And that's why doing stuff like eating in your workouts, it's going to be so important. So let's kind of break down the four passive recoveries, so to speak. We know sleep. Obviously, if I say that instantly, people will chime out and say, oh, he's talking about sleep. Sleep's important. They chime out. Obviously, right, you can get lots of sleep, but not good sleep architecture, which is your deep REM sleep. Your REM sleep is more for the neural connections in your body, and that's going to be heavily devastated by alcohol, right? And then we know that when it comes to your deep sleep, that's where we're going to see our hormone release, and that's going to be a lot for muscle repair. But when it comes to sleep, people have an elementary understanding and just say, oh, well, get good sleep. Well, that's not very helpful to most people. Um, So obviously... When it comes to sleep, some things I really want to put out there that people should know. Your sleep cycle is not necessarily dictated by when you say you want to go to sleep. It's about when your skin and your eyes are first exposed to morning light. So if you want to start to get a good night's sleep, it's actually going to start by waking up early and getting your as much skin exposure to good light as possible. That's super healthy and also sets your circadian rhythm. When it comes to sleeping at night, 
obviously simple stuff like making sure there's no uh, blue lights. And most people don't know blue lights are everything from the red light on your TV. They don't have to be blue to your overhead lights. So when the sun starts to set, you should be already starting to turn off as much overhead lights as possible. Number two, putting that phone away because yeah. you know that phone is the going to be the end of humanity is going to be smartphones. So about two hours out, you should probably put your phone on a charger and then you should probably have an alarm clock in your room. You should not have that phone in your room. It is sending 5G signals, blue waves. It is actually impacting your sleep if it's in the room. So just get it out of the room, put a clock on. And then what we want to think is we want a cool room and yep. there's no lights and I would sleep with a mask. And those are crazy things, but I would make it a habit. Those are some easy things to remember. And if you're waking up more than one time throughout the night to go to the bathroom, you're overhydrating and probably doing that a little bit too much before bed. Did so, you say sleep with a mask? Yeah, it's just one oh. additional way. Oh, you mean eye mask? Okay. Sorry, I'm stuck in yeah, yeah, freaking stuck in COVID the world. world. Yeah, I'm like, who's who's sleeping with a mask? Now, when I say those things, everyone's going to be like, I already know that. But it's funny. People say they know these things, and then they don't actually do them. They're on their phone in their bed for 30 minutes. That that's gonna that's gonna really mess with your melatonin, which is something also people take for recovery. But they take way too much. So, like for instance, if you're using melatonin, you probably only need one gram of melatonin. Most pills or things people take in their sleep aids are four to six grams, so it's probably keeping you up. Dude, I can't I can't take melatonin. Uh like because I am will stay up. Yeah. I am so like it, it makes me drowsy. You know how if you take Tylenol PM or something like that, like you can be drowsy. Melatonin keeps me drowsy for hours when I wake up. So there's an example. So people are like, oh, well, this is, they're like, I need to sleep better. And then they hear on another podcast, melatonin helps you start that sleep cycle or starts winding you down. Well, if you start turning your temperature down, like, you know, an hour before bed, when you start getting off over at lights, that's already starting the cycle. But then our caffeine intake is another important thing. So what's the half-life of caffeine? It's independent and varies, but it's about five hours to go down 50%. So let's say you have a banger monster <laughs> at like 4 p.m. That means at 9 o'clock, you'll still have 150 milligrams because they have about 300 in them or three cups of coffee in your system when you're trying to go to bed. So everything I just said was kind of a bullet list on purpose so people could kind of do a quick checklist. And most people should know these things, but the problem is just because we know it doesn't mean we're implementing it. Yep. It, it's so true. It's, it's, it's so frustrating because it, that that's, doesn't cost any money except for obviously maybe the AC in Phoenix or Vegas. <laughs> but sleep, we all know it. But once again, if we're not getting deep in REM sleep, you could get eight hours and it doesn't mean much, right? So yeah. the quality of sleep would be arguably more important than the quantity. No, absolutely. And, and to pile on that a little bit is going to bed right around the same time and waking yeah. up even on, even on the weekends, you know, or days that you have off, like try and wake up at, at right around the same time that you normally would. And I agree. It, it helps so much. I agree. I agree completely. And that's the whole thing is that, you know, a lot of that stuff was routine based, which works for young children. And it's just as an adult, you might have to restart that. I'm telling you right now, it is hard for us to put away the technology and start winding down, right? It is very hard, but we can be, so notice how you could say, I want to recover. 
So I know sleep is king. So I'm going to just go to bed early. Well, that's just hard for your body in today's day and age where we're stimulated with HBO and Stranger Things Season 4. Just watch that. <laughs> Eddie Munch is just shredding it. Yeah. <laughs> I know everyone's terminal list. By the way, side note, I messaged Chris Pratt after the terminal list and asked him if he wanted to get starched. Uh, we're waiting on the response. <laughs> I thought you were about to tell me. He's like, yeah, actually. Yeah, dude, let's do it. Let's do it. Um, so it, it, we're taking small steps. And so notice, if we truly believe that sleep is this magical, mythical, like, here for so many of our ailments, problems, anxiety, like, well, then why don't we treat it like that? It's because we're human and we say stuff is important, but saying something's important doesn't mean you actually go after it. You have to make it a priority. So sleep, obviously. Well, number two, right? So that's passive. I'm not doing anything. And obviously at night, that's when our cerebral spinal fluid is going to bathe kind of like a lymphatic drink. There's so many things, right? There's good resources out there, like Why We Sleep by Matt Walker. Oh, even though fantastic it's, book. It's It's got some, there, there's recently been some scientific arguments against some of his claims, but I think generally it's, it's where people need to start heading is towards respecting it, but not glorifying to the point where we get focused on one thing, remember? Because yeah. someone might be getting pretty good sleep, but then their nutrition. So, when it comes to recovery, we have obviously our pre-workout nutrition, our peri-workout nutrition, so that's intra-workout, and then post-workout nutrition. And I'm telling you right now, most people are eating not remotely close to the demands they're putting on their body, right? It's, it's absolutely crazy because most people maybe come from a strength background and then they're adding in the endurance. Or maybe someone's an endurance athlete, but they're not used to doing, you know, 100 pull-ups in a day. So when we become a concurrent athlete where we're training everything, swimming, rucking, running, pull-ups, push-ups, eight counts, the demands you're placing on your body nutritionally are quite high. And I'm not here to put blanket terms and say, this is what you eat because we know nutrition is so, so it's, it's like World War III when you start talking about nutrition. Yeah. And everyone's got their deeply held beliefs. And when you say anything about nutrition, people think you're calling their kid ugly. <laughs> But here's the truth is the demands for carbohydrate are much higher than most people think. So when it comes to this, what I want you to think is we have to know how much weight is just our maintenance weight. So if I don't know how much my total daily energy expenditure is, which is pretty much how many calories I just need to sustain my day, that's going to be a problem. So for most people, I say you need to spend about two weeks. You need to pull out the scale and you need to start measuring and kind of getting a baseline for how many calories is just maintenance, mm, right? Okay. Just to maintain. Just, just because, yeah, you know, obviously, you know, we're adding more if we're trying to gain and dropping more, but I don't want to get into that into today's discussion. But when it comes to nutrition, so like, for instance, um, when it comes to an effort, right, then we have our fueling the effort. So, for instance, if I said to most people, what do you do for recovery? They tell me about all their foam rolling and they tell me about all this. And then I'd be like, what did you do for nutrition? They're like, well, you know, I drank some electrolytes. What, what did you burn in terms of carbohydrate, protein, fat? And then they'd be like, well, I just ate. 
Well, how much? <laughs> right? Because don't you have another strength session four hours from now that you need to hit the stimulus? And if you're not refueled, how are you going to maximize that stimulus? Or once again, not delay the recovery process? So for instance, let me give some numbers to help people. These are not blanket numbers. Please don't take this as gospel. It's all individualized. For my athletes that are training for military selections or concurrently, I'm going to have them recover at 80% carbohydrate, 10% protein, and 10% fat from a cardiovascular effort. So let's do the math. Let's say you go for an hour run and you burn 500 calories. 80% of that would be roughly, what, 400 calories, which would be 100 grams of carbs. Think about that. 100 grams of carbs is a lot for most I was going to say, that sounds like a lot. And it's not because of what we are doing, which is concurrent training. You have to supply in carbs or the fuel for performance. I don't care what the keto cult says. This is not about stopping seizures, which is what the keto diet was originally for. This is not about insulin. This is about performance, not health. So 80%, and here's the thing, that's just to recover from the effort, not to repair. Recover, repair. So we probably have to add an additional 10% calories from that. So that would be about 100 grams of carbs. Then if I'm doing 10% protein, that would be around 25 grams of protein, and then around 10 grams of fat. And you see how I know those numbers? It's because I, in my workout book, I'll pull this out. So I, I did my training earlier today. You guys can see, I, I know people can't see this if they're not watching YouTube. So on my book, I literally went for my run and then I calculated how many calories I burnt. And under here, I sit, have a section called substrates. That's why I'm super nerdy. It's not called food. <laughs> I literally have the exact carbs, fats, and protein breakdown. I need to recover and repair from that effort. So I am not spending additional time in recovery. Because if, let's say I need a, 100 grams of protein or carbs, uh, 25 grams of protein and 10 grams of fat. And I get 50 grams of carbs, which would be a lot for most people. That's a decent amount for most people. Yeah. Post-run because they just grab something light, right? Like a banana, a banana and some electrolytes. I'm already down 50%. And most people aren't eating during their workouts, which is a problem too. If I'm just a power lifter, I don't need to eat during my workout because I'm not burning through glycogen to any significant set. If I have a run in the morning and I'm going to the pool to swim later that night, I need to be eating during my events. And that's the crazy thing. So I teach people that they need to be eating. So for some of my training runs, I'm getting upwards of 100 grams of carbs per hour for my longer events. So if I'm going for a four-hour run, I'm getting 100 grams per hour so that when I'm done with that event, I'm not delaying my recovery process. And at what so, mechanism are you are you eating that? Yeah, so this is number one. The practice of training is we have to learn how to eat while we're training. And most people, here's here's so here's an example. Someone will go to the pool and they'll fin for 90 minutes. They, they might do that in the morning because that's when the pool's available. They don't eat. And then they go to do their Metcon or circuit later. Do you see how we're chronically underfueling? And especially, yeah. like I said, for most of my concurrent athletes, I'm prescribing 80% carbohydrate, 10% protein, 10% fat to recover from their workouts. Obviously, the individual variances are going to be on their other meals. And again, right? this is performance-based. This is this going is performance. for performance. I'm not telling you, right? This is to refuel from exercise. 
right? And then the second thing is, so obviously, right, with nutrition, it's like, then we got to talk about like how much protein do we need, right? You, people are focused on protein and they're getting like two grams, they're trying to get like two grams per pound of lean muscle mass. So if someone weighs 150 pounds, they're like, oh, I hit 300 grams of protein today. That makes no sense because if a burn victim is in the hospital, they're only given like at max 1.2 grams to 1.5 grams per pound. And they've lost massive amounts of tissue, more than we could sustain in any training. Carbohydrate, despite what the internet says, despite, despite what Dr. Mark Hyman says, is the fuel of endurance training. Not powerlifting, not standalone sessions, but collectively. So when people get into these, when they go through the, the you know, to prep or SWIC, when they get to combat control school, you, they haven't, they, they're, they're so focused on what, where's the Theragun, they haven't even got their nutrition numbers down. No, that's true. And what might be a perceived lack of performance is a lack of fueling, and fuel always adds up. So what you did on Tuesday is limiting you on Wednesday afternoon, potentially Thursday morning. So on Thursday, you might be like, wow, I had a really bad run. You might have been under your carbohydrates for the past two days, and now it's finally hit you. And now, since you're underfueled in carbs, you cannot stimulate, you can't run that fast. So now it feels harder, you're adapting less, and you're spending more time in recovery. So it's a confounding problem. It's It, it makes total sense, um, especially because when, when I went through NDOC, it was Mondays were evaluation days. So, you know, we had all weekend of, of rest, just shoving down large Papa John's pizzas in our faces, you know, and Mondays were evaluation days. And I mean, by the time you got to Friday, you were, you were smoked, just done. And I'm for sure a carbohydrate and a caloric deficit without a doubt, because, you know, we're only eating three meals a day and this is, you know, late nineties, early two thousands. And, you know, to take extra food out of the chow hall was, you know, that was unheard of. And they weren't supplementing us with any kind of protein shake or anything like that. So, I mean, well, in, it was... in, in selection, it, I'm sure people are going to say, well, what do I do in selection? It's like, you don't have a choice what food you're given. They give you and you do. It's yep. not about performance. I know you're trying to get selected, but it's not about your, it's actually about durability. It's about survival. Yep. You're not you're not trying to win a 800 meter race at you know a track the USA track and field. You're trying to survive an ungodly and unsustainable amount. So obviously, when it's out of your control, stop trying to control it. So people are going to be like, "Well, what do I eat during selection if they don't give us food?" Well, I wonder. Probably nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you don't have anything to eat, but that now, you know. But but again, you you sleep when you can and you eat when you can. Exactly. There's there's no magic. Don't quit. Yeah. Don't Stop quit. focusing on what you're gonna eat. Don't quit. Now, if you're given the if you're given the resources, don't squander them. Right. But the whole thing is people are trying to mimic selection and the David Goggins mentality in their training. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, if your goal is to break your like, would this be smart? If if we were doing a bike ride today. Should I just poke a very small hole in my tire and then you and I go for a ride? You'll be working harder, but like, <laughs> are you getting more progress? No. So same thing. 
Should I just not sleep tonight so my training feels harder tomorrow? Would that be good for performance? That's no. wild to even like when you when you break it down like that, you're like, well, obviously yeah. not. So should I just not drink water so my run feels harder? So it's not about making yourself feel harder so you can go on Instagram and get clout for training for special warfare. Look, right? It, it's about adapting and progress. Training is about building yourself as high as possible because what will the pipeline do due to the demands? It will break. There's no question. No person, no matter how strong they get, no matter how many miles they run, they will break and their body will be broken by the end of selection. Yeah. So that breaking implies you're losing capacity, your body's breaking down, you're losing muscle mass. How much weight did you lose uh, during indoc? I have no idea, but it was it was probably 17, 17 pounds ish, probably. So, perfect. so I'm not telling people to just get super heavy so they lose, but you get what I'm saying. <laughs> same, same with joint health. If my hip can only rotate twenty degrees, what is that at the end of selection? It barely can budge. Oh yeah, you're. It'd be telling back. So wouldn't you rather start your hip at 40 degrees and drop to 20 versus start at 20 and drop to zero? Right? So training, there are a lot of people listening to Ones Ready are a year out from BMT and SWIC, and they say, well, I need to be doing what they're doing the last day of selection and my, and my weekly workouts. I'm like, are you insane right now? No. Do you go, find me any pro athlete that does what they do in their training or sorry, in their competition, exactly multiple times in training. So do 100-mile marathons or 100-mile ultra marathoners run 100 miles before no. their race? Nope. No. The, a lot of them, the longest run they do is 30 miles. That's 30% of the volume. Could they yeah. run 100 miles? Yes. Would it be productive to getting building their fitness, their capacity, and working on their weakest links? No, you would just destroy yourself and whatever's the weakest link is just going to get absolutely obliterated. So if you're only as strong as your weakest link, sure you can try to break yourself, but you're going to be successful. So yeah. nutrition is it's pointless to say, which is more important sleep or nutrition, stupid discussion. You need to know your numbers basically, because if you don't have any relative idea, like for instance, if I make a PB and J sandwich, which everyone on the planet does, oh, love you it. can roughly guess what I'm getting in terms of proteins, fat, and carbs. So if I'm in the pipeline, I'm not going to pull out a calculator that I don't have available and say, I wonder what my macros are. <laughs> no, I have a relative idea that this is about the amount of food per hour I can handle. So I need to be getting, so for me, when I, I just did a mountain run the other day, I said, I need to get 25 grams of carbs per 15 minutes to hit hundred grams. And I did that for four straight hours, no exception. Because I have to fuel or else I'm not able to stimulate or run at the pace or work at the pace or lift the weight I need to to get uh, to adapt, not simply get tired. Remember, fatigue is not stimulating, right? Fatigue isn't what makes us stronger, faster, better. If so, don't sleep for the next two weeks and see if you're lifting heavier. <laughs> no, it's not you're, fatigue. You're right. Like, I mean, it's I'm, I'm, I'm going to go climb Mount Charleston, which I think is – just under 15,000 feet or maybe 14,000 feet. And it's a 16 mile out and back. Like, and you better believe I'm going to have a stack of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in my bag, just pulling them out occasionally just to hike that hike up that. And that's, it's a very doable, like I could do it right now, but I, again, I want to be able to go for a run or do a workout the next day. 
it, you're, 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 when you're, if you're on a, so you say you're on a morning run, you're fueling not, it's not about that run. Not, no, no, no. It's about the rest of your training week. Mm -hmm. The week is more important than the day, which is more important than the session. And then obviously with nutrition comes hydration, right? So hopefully we're, I'm talking about the big four that people are going to be so shocked that I'm spending all this podcast talking about these and not how to maximize the Theragun, right? So like, for instance, for hydration, right? Uh, like how much water do I take? How much sodium do I take? That's crazy important. And obviously when you're given water, when you're given stuff, you can only do with what you're given. So you might not have access to certain electrolyte mixes. It's going to be what they give you in the hydration, right? Yep. But some easy numbers to remember is, so for me, if I want to know how much I should drink, this is a tricky question, right? And it's going to depend on how hot it is, how much I sweat, all that stuff. A good equation, this is, remember, these are not rules, but they're more to get people a ballpark to start practicing fueling. Most people are not practicing fueling. They're just, they're just, oh, I forgot to eat. I'm just going to eat something. Or I'm hungry. So if I take my body weight and I divide it by 30, that's going to give you about how many fluid ounces per 15 minutes you need um, for a workout. So that's an easy number for people to remember. Um, if you're a numbers person and you like saying, okay, okay, we're going to be out for four hours on this rock because there's going to be a certain point where you have to self-manage. Obviously, mm -hmm. in SWIC and BMT, people tell you hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. When you get to selection, it is your responsibility to fuel and take care of your body within the context and equipment and calories provided. You are in charge of your fuel. And if you fall behind, that's because you didn't take it seriously enough. And that's the whole point. So knowing these can help people in their training practice. So then when they get to selection, they can just do whatever they can to survive. So obviously, right. I'm not a math person, but you get the idea. Now, what about for recovery? So let's say I go for a run and I weigh 180 pounds and then I lose three pounds of water weight on my run. Well, for every pound of body weight lost in water, I would replace it with around 16 fluid ounces of, uh, right, your electrolyte mix or anything like that, like a Pedialyte type solution, okay? And the reason why I'm talking about something like uh, that is so let's say you go for a run and you're used to just having like 16 ounces of water after. Well, my goodness, if you lost three pounds, do you see how you're now under, you're dehydrated and you might have another session later in the pool and you don't realize how much you're sweating in the pool. And you might oh, yeah. have sweat off a lot of sodium and you just had water because you didn't plan well. And now you're behind on sodium, which is going to limit you like crazy. So some other numbers people can remember is how much fluid can my stomach handle per hour? This is a golden number. Okay, Your stomach can process about 800 milliliters per hour if it's completely full. So a full stomach will actually empty faster than a partially full stomach. That's a, that's a great thing to remember. Hmm. So if I'm going to go out and train in the hot and heat, which a lot of people are, I'm going to probably have 800 milliliters of a Pedialyte type solution an hour before, and I'm not going to eat because what I don't want to do is I don't want a bunch of food and sugar in, uh, in my stomach because then water is going to stay in the stomach to basically make sure it dilutes that. 
So what a lot of people do is to say, oh, I'm going to go for a run. I'm going to eat a bunch of food in the hot environment and all that jazz. So they get a bunch of food in there. They drink, swash down a Gatorade, and then they run and their stomach's all sloshing. So they're actually not getting, they're not absorbing water well. So here's your number to remember. 800 milliliters per hour on a full stomach of fluid. And if you have a half full stomach, you're going to only be able to process around 500 milliliters per hour. Peaches, why does that matter? What if I try to down a liter and a half of water in one hour? Why would that be a problem? You're going to be bloated to hell. And bloated. it's going to be very uncomfortable. And the balance between water and electrolytes. Well, it won't be balanced. Exactly. So you're going to start to head towards hyponatremia. So hydration is important. But if we start just taking down water, 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 you can push yourself to a point where you're actually going hyponatremic. So a lot of people yeah. are coming to San Antonio, right? It's hot and humid. And so they think, oh my gosh, I'm going to be dehydrated. So they just start chugging water. So they chug like a liter and a half. And then they go for a run and then yeah. they start feeling like, oh my gosh, my world is ending. I'm, my pace is slowing. And that's, that is no joke. That has happened to me before. Like right. I, 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 I've done it once, but I was a victim of that. So we've got to be smart. So I want people as we're breaking this down to like, everyone will say hydration is important. Dehydration is not something we want. Sleep is important. Um, and we want to focus on it, but then they don't have any specifics or anything. They just, Oh, ready? How helpful is this? Just stay hydrated. <laughs> That's not helpful. That's not helpful. It's going to change based on my sweat rate. It's going to change based on how salty of a sweater I am. So if I'm coming to a hot environment for the first couple of weeks, I'm going to sweat out more sodium than if you and I have spent four months in a hot environment, then I'll sweat yeah. out less sodium because that's one of the adaptations to eat. So why these numbers are important is because we want to make sure that we have enough fluid to be able to stay hydrated, but we don't want to actually now swing the fence and say, well, I just need to drink so much because I'm in San Antonio and I drink so much and actually go hyponatremic. You'll actually see that in the Ironman races. The people who actually DNF or do not finish are actually most of the time not dehydrated. They're actually hyponatremic. They just pounded the water. So, well, they, so what happens is they hit, a, they start hitting a wall. Uh, they get to an aid station. They start pounding way, way too much water. They start uh, diluting. Basically they don't have enough, the proper ratios. Then they don't drink to thirst. So they start just drinking to cool off versus drinking when you're thirsty. So mm. it's very important that we focus on drinking to thirst. Unless I said, unless you're kind of like a numbers person and you can take that body weight divided by 30. When you say, reason, when you say drink to thirst, can you elaborate yeah, on that so a little bit? When, 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 well, a lot of people just be like, wow, I'm really hot. And then they'll just take sips of water. Drink to thirst is you actually, if you're like, wow, I think I'm, I'm kind of thirsty. I want something to drink. If you think about it two or three times, there probably actually are. If you think about it once briefly and it's fleeting, no worries. So the reason why we drink to thirst is because it's still the most accurate in terms of making sure that we get enough water because our body will let us know. And then number two is that we don't do too much when it comes to that. Because I can even say, well, oh, I, I want to pour a bunch of electrolytes in my mix and then people will put like two full electrolyte mixes in here. So their stomach has a ton of sodium in it. Because remember, if I have food in here, 
that has sodium as well and sugar. <laughs> so we don't want to do too much sodium. We don't want to do too little. And so it's this balance point, right? And so that's why for a lot of people, if you alternate sipping between your electrolyte mix and water, so look, couple sips, electrolyte, then when you feel thirsty, again, couple water, that's not the world's worst strategy. Okay. So when, when companies like, and I'll just use, use them because a hoist, you know, they have a powder. Um, Max has a a certain amount and it says, um, mix with 20, 20 fluid ounces, right? I have been using one of those 40 ounce hydro flasks because I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to be out for a while. I may not like, so am I doing that incorrectly then? Should I just do 20 and then have a separate, just spare water? Like, you know, that's totally fine. That's totally fine. All right. I just want people to be a little bit smarter. Uh, and realize that it's all about that Goldilocks, right? Not too much, not too little. That, so, you know, there's all these popular podcasts right now talking about the power of salt and when it comes to hydration, for sure. And it's really hard when we're working out super hard to, like, replace. We'll never re- replace salt. It's all Sodium's always going to be lost, so it's really hard to do. But I want people to realize that if you have too much sodium and sugar in the gut, and your gut can't handle it, water's going to stay in there. And why does that matter when we're in a hot, human environment? So here's an example. You're about to go on a ruck because you want to run in, ruck in the middle of the day. So you slam down a bunch of food, right? And then you slam a bunch of, like, you just chug a bunch of LMNT or something like that. You just got to realize that can stay in your gut and slosh around than actually uh, being transported out of the gut in a uh, small intestine. Hmm. So, Yeah. So hydration, uh, that's just, these are ballparks. Don't, don't religiously follow these, but at the same time, start practicing, right? These are going to impact you five times more than, you know, getting a chiropractic adjustment when it comes to recovery, right? And being able to perform and keep going. And then obviously, so we talked about sleep. We talked about nutrition. We talked about hydration. Obviously, the final one is going to be simply just the the mental, right? The mental stress or the psychological stress. So, I mean, that that's that's another thing is we've got to understand that not all stress is physical. So, you're we're sitting there and we're saying, okay, I, I need to take a rest day. So then we go and then we just sit on our phones all day and then we get in internet fights or we just watch ten thousand videos, right? I mean, if <laughs> Is, yeah, is that yeah, yeah. actually, you know, psychologically de-stressing you or are you actually just adding another stressor, but you can't perceive it as the same as physical stress, right? So we all too often think about, oh, what do I need to do in terms of recovering my muscles in between workouts? But often we don't think, what do I need to do to kind of wind down or go from a sympathetic state, which is flight or flight, kick ass, to a parasympathetic state? Now, one of the quickest ways we can get there is simply by doing a good cool down after a workout. That's going to help physiologically, but also uh, that's where all those breathing drills and stuff come in. But I also think it's important that on your rest day that you actually rest, that you don't say, well, I'm going to now go run 25 errands and I'm going to get mad in traffic. See if you can actually rest. Hmm. And that goes back to the beginning, how, you know, we've turned rest days into recovery days. And then we turn recovery days into actually doing things that are actually increasing our recovery time. If we do too many of them at the wrong intensities. So the final aspect is 
we have to recover in terms of our mental stress, right? We have to be able to handle that. So those four right there are passive recoveries. It's not like I'm necessarily doing anything to try to, right? Obviously, if I go and I sit on the couch and read a good book, I'm kind of winding down, right? Yeah. If I sit and listen to good music, that's right. Or if I do some light breathing drills, that's kind of passive recovery. I'm not really getting up and doing anything active. It's funny you 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 mentioned you know listening to music because I listen to a lot of podcasts, a lot of audiobooks, and uh, you know some of it's world news, political, others not. You know, but I notice like I can I can feel it. Like, I, I don't know what I feel, but I, like, I can just like, okay, I need to throw on some music and, and whether it's, you know, it doesn't matter the music, but like, I just need some music to help kind of like, okay, I got to bring it down some, and right. I'm a pretty relaxed dude. <laughs> well, that's the thing is like, what, when's the last time you did a recovery day and you shut off your phone for the whole day? Right. Yeah. How much is that stimulating your brain? When's the last time your brain has had a day without that thing? And I, it's, it seems like I'm unfairly picking on that phone, but when, when are you decreasing that psychological stress to allow your brain to recover? So it's yeah. so easy to say, okay, I'm going to hit my macros, but we're getting stim- There's more stimulation. You will be stimulating more in terms of your eyesight and your brain with um, phones, social media, like in one day than some people experience in their whole lifetime. Because how many posts have you gone through today? How many podcasts are you listening to today? Songs. So I think that one of the most important things for psychological stress is turn off the phone. Not not put it in another room. You'll go find it. Turn it on. So those are the big four. But what's so funny is before this podcast, everyone already knew these. Yeah. But are they taking them seriously? And they can say yes, but talk is cheap. When I go through most elite athletes programs or people I train, I rarely get past these four. So people are like, well, Taylor, what should I do for, are there any good like lacrosse ball things for my rotator cuff? Yes, there are. And I'm not saying you can't. And obviously if you're in something like SWIC or you're in the pipeline, you don't get to choose your training. You're doing what is told. So if that training volume is above what is sustainable, you have to somehow try to sustain it. So will you have to use more of those active tricks like uh, ice baths and lacrosse balls and all that? Stuff? Yes, because you are tra- it, your training is no longer under your control. Yeah. So yes, in the pipeline, you're going to have to get creative and try to figure out how, how to manage the training load that is imparted on you that is not your choice. But when you're training on your own, and when I'm working with people, I rarely get past these four. <laughs> these are where the most bang for your buck is. But yet somehow, when we go, when I go through all four, there's generally two of the four that stick out a little bit more. So someone's probably, maybe someone's really good with nutrition. Okay, let's focus a little less there. Let's focus that. But when I ask most people, can you show me what you ate yesterday? Most people would think, oh, that's for like people trying to lose fat. What about performing? When I ask all my top athletes who are world-class champions, they know exactly what they need to hit nutritionally, carbs, proteins, fat, and then they know they, what they need to hit in terms of fluids, and then they obviously are making sure that their training program is managing stressors and complementing each other versus saying, I'm going to take this powerlifting routine 
and add it to this other running routine. Well, that powerlifting routine was for a professional powerlifter, and it was not written for someone training for combat control. That running routine was written by a guy who was a D1 um, cross-country runner, but never lifted in his life. You just smashed the two together, and then you said, I'm going to go as hard as possible, and I'm going to test my limits. And no wonder why your shoulder's starting to hurt. No wonder why. But remember, most people don't accept this until what their game plan stops working. Because everything works for a while. Yeah. But when it stops working, that's when I start having conversations with people. Because most people won't listen to this until their game plan stops working. And that's fine. Keep doing stuff until it stops working. But I'm here when people need to know what to do next. So those are the big four. Notice how we didn't talk about foam rolling, dry needling, infrared sauna, ice baths, all that stuff. Sleep, nutrition, hydration, and then obviously the psychological aspect of recovery. Man. Because people are trying to hack their weight. I know. Well, that's what everybody wants to do. Everybody wants to biohack now. The recovery, but it's more sustainable in the long run to let your body recover naturally. This marketing machine behind recovery is trying to trick people. They can train harder than their body can sustain. So that's what I talked about. So your back is completely screwed. So you foam roll it, you dry needle it, and then you go squat again when your body was telling you, yo, you have not recovered. You are not ready for this next stimulus. If you try to stimulate, you're going to annihilate. So I don't foam roll, I don't lacrosse ball, not as a virtue signal, but because why would I take away the, why would I take away the feedback? Tightness, pain, inflammation is feedback of my training inputs. So if I go and then try to hack my way through that to get another set of 400s in, what am I doing? I won't be able to do that for a while because the body will super compensate until it can't. I mean, I got to tell you, the, it was either the first or second time that we talked and we, we started talking about the zone two stuff. Like I have really throttled back my, my run pace, um, my everything, even my crossfit workouts. Like I, I've, I've really gone, okay, well, I don't need to go ham on this. I would, and you had just posted something the other day too, about uh, whatever one of these world-class athletes spent, I think 88%, 88% of his time. Yeah. Alan Webb, he was the fat, one of the fastest American milers, like a 346. And I went through his training logs and he spent about, I think it was 90-ish percent at below Venable, uh, VT1. So basically low intensity in most people's standards. And that guy's faster than all of us. Yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's insane. It's, it's insane. It's because once again, it's, it's, hard because like for instance so when you're strength training your goal is to not get your heart rate up and be breathing hard you can you can improve your strength without systemically stressing your cardiovascular system so like if i do three reps of three and i get stronger and i have enough energy or adaptation currency to then go do hard track intervals i get the strength adaptation i get the cardiovascular adaptation and i can actually work on my skill so we have a lot of skill work that we need to work on when it comes to the uh, rocking is a skill. Buddy breathing is a skill. Running for some people is a skill. There's so much things you have to be good at. You cannot yeah. train like a professional powerlifter. You can't train like a pro ultra runner. You can't train like most athletes because 
You've got to be strong enough, and then you've got to stop obtaining strength. You know, I'll always think of an example of a guy who went through one of the courses. He could bench press close to 400 pounds, but he was actively drowning every time he was treading water. So that... Your bench press means nothing. What are you going to do? Bench the water away? <laughs> it's but uh, conversely, if you're some yeah. ultra marathon runner that just like is wicked fast and can just run for days, but you can't pull me out of a vehicle, then Same thing. like I, I remember one of the other from uh, back in 2017, we had a runner who set the record at one of the tests, um, similar to you know one of the IFTs, and he failed his pushups. So yeah. cool. I don't care. Congratulations on being, you know, on losing, quitting, yeah. whatever, you, you know, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> losing, quitting, the, the whole point is once you've achieved something, you've achieved it. Why are you spending more money there? So you have people right now that their, their, their trap bar deadlift is, you know, 400 pounds. What are you, what, you just need to put that into maintenance mode. You don't yeah. get to spend, why are you trying to get heavier? You have people on the opposite spectrum who can run, you know, like blazing fast times, and yet they can't do 12 pull-ups without hitting maximal failure. We we have to understand recovery resources are finite. We are always competing for time and recovery resources. And training is not the work you do, it's the effect it has on your body. And if we're allocating more resources for repair than we are growth, we're not going to be able to progress or progress very long. So when it, what happens is when people start plateauing, when their program and their plan starts failing, which eventually does, what they do, if it's not working, they just have more volume on top of volume. So they're not sending any additional signals for the body to adapt. They're just creating more noise. Actually, a great book to read that has nothing to do with training is called Signal and the Noise by Nate Silver. It talks about how like so much of stuff in research in our world is just noise. Like we think it matters, but it doesn't. So a lot of people are doing just because you do a rep doesn't mean it tells your body to adapt. So if I do a set of 10 uh, on a bench press, it might not be until rep number six, seven, eight, nine, that I'm actually getting an adaptive signal. Hmm. So what I'm telling people is you have to have enough energy to hit the right intensity or the right volume or else you will not adapt. You'll just get tired. And that's important because your goal in training, not selection, not testing, not that your goal is then demonstration. But when you're training, your goal is adaptation. There's a difference. There's a like, difference. But in, and that's... There's a difference. Now, and you see, you, you, yeah. Because then someone should say, well, Taylor, what don't I need to put myself in the suck to know... To, to kind of like, you know, meant to push through my mental barriers. <laughs> yes. Yes. But you have to plan the suck. Right. You can't just say, oh, well, today, uh, let's just add in, you know, let's do weighted Murph at 45 pounds. I was reading one of the threads and a guy was just like, yeah, I put on a 40 pound vest and went for a six mile run. They're like, Were you, oh, that's cool. You added vest. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, why the hell would you add a weight vest? You're running slower. Or is it your goal to be a faster runner? Not to make it harder for the sake of making it harder? You can do things that are counterproductive, maladaptive in your training, which means that they're not making you better. They're just making you tired, right? And yeah. that's the hard thing because if just getting tired was the key, well, shoot, okay. We can do just, that. 
So if you want to work on stuff like that, you have to plan it. Or you can do something like, okay, ready? You want to do something that's hard? Just wake up at 1 a.m. and do your workout from 1 to 3, and then don't post about it on social media. There you go. Is that hard? Yeah, because you have to wake up, and what's the first thought when you wake up? Oh, my God, I don't want to do this right now. Yep. Okay? But is that putting your shoulder at risk? No. Right? If it was the workout you planned during the day. So there's an example of how to make a workout harder mentally without breaking yourself just to say that David Goggins said, take no rest days. And I love the guy. You can know how much I'm a fan of the guru yeah. there. But what people are doing is they're just seeing how far or how many reps they can do or how much weight they can do until they break themselves. Breaking implies you have to spend more time repairing. And isn't the goal to adapt? Right. I, I bring it back to our initial conversation and I sound like I'm being rude or kind of like that, but I'm trying to remind people what training is. Now, if you say, man, I've had a bad week. I just want to hit buys and tries, you know, pump the, pump the, pump the, I knew up. they were going to, they were going to make a, they were going to make an appearance at some point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, <laughs> right. We've already talked about that, but that's a one-off. That's okay. I'm talking about you are training to to physically do what no, very few people can do, right? The one of the 1%. Yeah. Your body needs to be as durable as possible. And that implies building your body, not breaking it. Because I can't tell you how many people um, went on waiver belts or they were injured in uh, SWIC and prep or went to white team or they were in selection and they blew out their ACL. And they had those problems coming into BMT. They have to come into the MT. I cannot preach as a coach how many people, and here's the crazy thing. Most people are spending all their time recovering and repairing the stuff they're breaking in their own training. Think not, about not that. From, not from SWIG, so, not from pep, prep. We said at the, beginning, the best recovery tool on the planet is a program that properly manages load, stress, and intensity and manages that based on what training volume your body can handle. That's the best. Forget everything else I said today. A training program trumps sleep, volume, all that, all of it. Most people are breaking themselves with their training programs because they're improperly laid out. They're not managing the stressors, and they have way too much volume, and they're, they're poorly managing it. So then it's causing shoulder pain, back issues, shin splints. And then they spend all their time trying to do active recovery to fix the stuff that their program is causing. But they never would have had in the first place. <laughs> What? Your program caused shin splints, not running didn't cause it. You think that you because you you're you're running it caused shin splints. No, it was your training program. Yeah. And you want to know a pretty good recovery tool that's better than a foam roller? It's called patience. Oh, right? Yeah, you're not wrong, and man. Patience is not simply the ability to wait, it's to also have a good attitude while waiting. So it, most running injuries, most training injuries are because we aren't patient enough to have a program because most programs go too quick, too fast, too heavy. Yeah. And they, they're thinking in terms of these boxes where, oh, they, the strength program was created as a strength program. The run program was created as a run program. The run program, they're not thinking about how this all interplays. And you have to rob Peter to pay Paul, and Paul has to pay Peter back. And we only have so much money we spend. 
So if you go and you say, well, today I'm just going to throw on a weight vest and do 200 rep push-ups a day. Okay, I'm not saying you can't do push-ups every day. How are you recovering from that? How much nutrition did it take to recover? So I know a lot of people are doing push-ups and pull-ups and sit-ups every day. How much energy does it take to recover from your 200 push-ups? Have you done the math? No. How are you recovering psychologically from having to do push-ups throughout your whole day? How are you recovering in terms of hydration for the additional reps? Do you see how no one's thinking about that? They're not thinking about how do I recover from this? They're thinking, well, can, should, uh, can I do it? Everyone can do anything. Your mind's amazing. Your body's amazing. The human spirit is amazing. It's not about what you can do. It's about what you can recover from and sustain for long periods of time. And I'd like to think years and decades, not simply swick. <laughs> yeah, well, you do. Because you, you, if, right? yeah, if you make it through SWIC, you make it through ANS, and you get selected through the pipeline, like you still got to do not just the rest of your career, but the rest of your life. Like, right. It, 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 it's one of those things where, so then what we, so, so it's so funny. I watch people. And when I look at people's programs, people send me their programs or, you know, pay me to like go through it and kind of see what's going on. I'm like, you, the, the amount of things you're doing is insanity. And they think, well, well, I'm going to go to selection. I'm going to do a thousand reps a day. That's the equivalent of saying, well, I'm going to run a hundred mile ultra marathon. I better do it every day. I'm doing a hundred mile race coming up here. I'm not running over 30 miles because I'm building. The race is breaking and testing. It's going to happen. Like you don't need to do that. Like, you know, what's going to stop you from getting selected if you blow your ACL in SWIC. I've seen it happen. I've oh, yeah. been there when a kid's taken out his ACL and he said that he never fully recovered it. He just kept pushing harder and harder and harder and he tried to make grad standards. Yes, you should be trying to exceed the standard and I want everyone coming into basic training to be well above the standard. But if you break yourself in the process, what good is it? Because you're only heading towards more unsustainable training volumes. Selection, no one can sustain those training volumes because that's what it's designed to do. It's written in a way that no one can do. So your training a year out, six months out, two years out, should be about building and not short-circuiting your recovery to do unsustainable training loads that you know your body can't handle. But we've created all these hacks and gimmicks. So here's the truth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's- so you know, the final piece I'd like to add, the caveat, so people don't get mad because <laughs> the internet ruins everything and people all take the context out and they apply it to the outliers in the 1%. Performance, top level performance is like walking a razor blade without trying to fall off or get or cut yourself. So what I mean by that is we're always walking this insanely fine line between training hard, recovering, not getting injured. It's, it's training. So, of course, we're, we're, there's no perfect formula. Every top athlete is playing this delicate balance of when do I push? When do I pull back? And that's where we have all the tools like the WHOOP and the HRVs or professional strength and conditioning coaches is really all right. If, that, if, yeah. if this wasn't a hard thing, if there was an easy answer, I probably wouldn't have a job. That's right? true. And this, and this, this would not be a trillion or 
billion dollar service. Someone who, someone who was a D1 football player who's going into the pipeline will recover from deadlifts way easier than someone who was a cross country runner. Yeah. It's, it, so that's why it's hard because people want this easy, like ABC one, two, three answer, but you need to be asking yourself, like I said, just ask yourself, what, you know, how am I going to recover from this? How do I spend less time in recovery while still continuing to adapt? It's all about maximizing system recovery time. It's all about that. And so you should know, like I said, in my little journal, like I said, this is my workout journal. On here, I said, I have skill. So how hard was it? So I went for a trail run so that it was, there wasn't much skill involved. Here's my nutrition, how much I need to recover and how much I need to repair, which is plus 10% of what I need here. Here's my hydration numbers. I lost two pounds, so I needed uh, uh, 32 fluid ounces and 1,320 milligrams of sodium to recover. Here, I said, what was the mental stress of my run? And I said it was low because it's my normal running route. I said, what was the bone stress? Well, for me, four to five miles is not much stress. It's not like I ran down a mountain, which would be high stress on my bones. I said, uh, what was the intensity cardiovascularly? Low. And this is all in my training journal. And then what was the environment stress, environmental stress? And it was hot as hell and humid, so I put high. So I do that after every session, after every workout. I'm, I'm asking myself, what is this, what, how much skill does this take? For instance, a clean and jerk takes way more skill than a leg extension. What, what energy did I burn through? What was my hydration for the event? How do I recover in between events? So that's what I'm focused on when it comes to recovery. And I don't try to short circuit it. I supply my body with what it needs based on the demands and then I let it recover naturally. And if you're recovering slow, since recovery is not this macro thing, it's happening at a cellular level. Remember, all these processes that I talked about in the beginning, inflammation, um, blood flow, that's all at a cellular level. So we're recovering at these micro processes. So what is your Theragun doing for cellular processes? Nothing. Nothing at all. Right. So if you're having a hard time recovering, you probably have a poor deconditioned cardiovascular system. You're probably not sleeping and getting good architecture. You're probably not fueling nutritionally and, or you haven't dealt with the psychological demands or the stress mentally. Most people, if they look towards those, are going to actually start to realize how much they've been hindering their recovery. We can't really speed it up, per se, even though I know that's semantics, but we can definitely slow it down. I Taylor, every time I, I talk to you, I, I don't feel attacked, but I just feel um, like I really don't know anything when it comes to, it, it, and, you know, I'm talking from somebody who's made it through selection. I have my own issues, you know, but uh, like, just like everybody, but it's just, um, it it's a, you're a wealth of knowledge. And I, I like, Every time I get a chance to talk to you, I, I just, I truly appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. And you can see that, like, so now, now it's, now I'm just challenging people to flip the script from how much stuff should I do to what should I not be doing? That, so that, that's where I've kind of. That can apply to your active recovery. Like for instance, people will be like, I'm going for a recovery run. I saw that in a couple um Reddit things. I'm like, you're eccentrically loading. I, I'm guilty. I have told people to do that. Okay. I've told people. We're all our two. But the more we are honest with ourselves, 
And remember, the better our training program is, that sorts out 95% of all this. Your training program is the number one recovery tool. A good freaking training program that wasn't written in isolation. It has to be written for a concurrent athlete. Well, uh, on that note, what is the name of your website again? Because I know that you have the the world's best pull-up program available. You know, it's finally got it out. Uh, it's just getstarch.com. Uh, yeah, of course. Just got a little side projects I like putting together. Um, I'm working on a shin splint thing right now because everyone has, everyone on the plan has gotten shin splints, but pretty much it's just, hey, do this TheraBand four way ankle exercise and a couple calories. So that's uh, hoping to get that one out soon. But yeah, getstarch.com. Nice. So getstarch.com, and then you're on, uh, you, you are on social media, but. You're not following anybody. So what's that one? I do not follow anyone. I, I realized how much time I was wasting. social media. I realized how like it was insane. Uh, I did it kind of as a fun experiment. Like, Hey, what am I using this for? Am I using it to create and share and help people? Or am I just scrolling mindlessly? Mm -hmm. I took it off and then I was like, Oh boy. And then I, it was a mind blowing experiment. I haven't gone back since. So yeah, just Taylor Starch. Um, yep, on the gram. Awesome. I, I, I'm like the person who people think I'm a social media person. Like I'm a content influencer. I'm like the last person. I hope that tomorrow it just shuts down and we can just all go train and spend time in person with each other. But I am on the gram and YouTube oh, and stuff. Like that. Dude, are you kidding me? Like, yeah, it's same, I'm in. We were in the same boat. Granted, at least for me, I can't speak for Trent or Aaron, but like, yeah, I. I I had had no social media since 2012. And then when we started this up in 2019, it was like, okay, well, I got to do this. And, and I, and I was fine. I was fine. Yeah. Loved it. It's because it ruins everything. So what will happen is someone will listen to the podcast be like, oh my gosh, this information is amazing. Then two hours later, listen to someone who says that's wrong. This is right. Yeah. You end up in this web of confusion. That's why I'm trying to, like I said, share things with people and then they can look into it more in depth. But you can't go wrong if you focus on those four freaking passive recovery. Awesome. You do active recovery, but let's spend some more time on the ones that make the most bang for your buck. Nope. I dig it. And uh, again, appreciate you joining us and everybody that's out there listening. Thanks for listening, watching, subscribing, doing whatever you're doing. And uh, appreciate it. And we'll see you next time. Later. Don't short circuit your recovery. Don't yeah. short circuit it. Call them Don't out. Do it. <laughs>